I tell you what, it has been crazy, uh, but it has been awesome. It, it has been so awesome, and God has been so good. And there's just been, been so many different opportunities to be innovative in, in the ways that we've uh, approached ministry. And really, we've been, been forced to, I mean, imagine stepping into a situation like that and trying to figure out how do we do ministry uh, going forward. And, and it's been exciting. I'll give you an example. Last night, we, we do our um, discipleship through our, our small groups, what we call our, our Sunday school classes. And so we do them. Most of them are on Thursday night. We do some of them on Wednesday night. So we had a small group, our small group at our house last night, and uh, we had uh, six people that were there in person. We had 11 people that were joining us online via Zoom. We had one of those 360-degree cameras in the middle of the room so that the people that are watching online can see everybody. I had a mic. We had a handheld mic, and it was just, it was the coolest thing, being able to study the Bible together with folks, regardless of whether they were there in person or, or they were online. And just things like that and opportunities and, and things that we would have never done if, if, if really, if there hadn't been a pandemic, if there had been this crisis. But I tell you what, we're just loving it and enjoying ministry down there. And I tell you what, when you, when you step into a, a, a ministry like that and you're, you're taking new steps in leadership, you learn all kinds of lessons and you have all kinds of first experiences. You know, we, we've been baptizing folks since we came in, uh, but this last, yeah, it was this last Sunday, we, uh, um, myself and one of our, uh, kind of our chief of staff, we were uh, filling up the baptistry. We have one of those baptistries that's like, it's kind of like a, one of those portable tanks, you know, and then you like, you, you go up the stairs and you go down in the baptistry. And so we're filling this thing up on Saturday because we knew we had some baptisms for Sunday. And, um, and we filled it up and it, it was kind of a little bit high. And we were like, well, he, he, his name's Larry. Larry asked me, he said, Jacob, uh, Pastor, do, do you think that we put too much water in here? And I said, nah, we'll be, we'll be fine. It's, it's okay. And so the next morning we come and this guy, and I, 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 we baptized three teens in the, our, our uh, afternoon service. We baptized an adult in our morning service. So he comes in, he gets in. And I'm telling you, like, the water is, like, that far from the top of this baptistry. And I'm still thinking, well, like, it's okay. You know, like, he's in for the most part. I think we'll be okay. And so and some of you are friends with me on Facebook. Or you, or you follow me on Twitter, and you saw this video I posted. So I go, and I baptize this guy, and I take him under the water and bring him out of the water. And there was, like, this tidal wave of water that comes off the back of the baptistry and just douses the floor. It was the craziest baptism I've ever been a part of. That guy will never forget it. I will never forget it. But that's the kind of stuff you get to do when you're in ministry. And it's just exciting, man. We're, we're so thankful, even in the midst of crazy times, uh, that God is blessing and working. And, and people, people are still getting baptized and saved and being added to the church. I tell, I tell you what, too, I, I'm, just, I'm so thankful for the, um, the godly men that have just invested in me from here over the years. And Liz and I always enjoy coming back here and uh, being around the college and, and the church, you know. And I, I think of guys like Dr. R and Dr. Getch and uh, you know, Toby England and Dr. Weaver and others. And I, I remember back when I was still in high school, uh, I was in, I'm originally from Florida, and I remember uh, Dr. Weaver coming through, and he, he, he probably doesn't even remember this, but I remember him coming through uh, my church on one of those tour groups, and he cornered me in one of the back hallways. He's like, son, you've got the look, you've got the stuff, you need to come to Bible college. <laughs> and here I am, all these years later, you know. I'm just so thankful for, for the investment of men like that, for Pastor Chapel and other, others on the church staff, you know. And some guys, they, they come out of college and stuff, and they kind of have a chip on their shoulder, and they're maybe bitter about some things. But I'm just, I'm just so thankful about the investment uh, that these men that I know love me and care about me and love you and care about you have made into my life and my family's life. And I, I just want to encourage, encourage you to keep that spirit and to learn from these men and the women that are here that are mentoring you and, and investing their lives into you as well. And with that, I'm going to have you go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 this, uh, this morning. It is morning. 
And we're going to be looking primarily at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about salt and light today. But before we get there, I, I want to give you some context uh, from this passage of Scripture. I'm actually, I'm, I'm teaching through really Matthew 5 through 7 with our church now on Sunday nights. And I, I titled it, and I told them, kind of promoted it when we were coming into starting this series up. I called it, I said, you guys got to start coming on Sunday nights because you're going to hear the greatest sermon ever told. Now, they thought that was for me, but it's not really me. It's the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you can't do any better than Jesus teaching and preaching. And so we've been taking some time to really work through verse by verse and look at the Sermon on the Mount. And, and he starts out his sermon really talking about the kingdom of God and the citizens of the kingdom of God. And he, he talks about, really in verses 1 through 16, he talks about a couple different things. He talks about the, the character of the citizens of the kingdom. And then he talks about the blessings of the citizens of the kingdom. The character brings the blessings. And then thirdly, he talks about the impact of the citizens of the kingdom. And we're going to talk this morning primarily about that impact. But before we get there, I, I want to give you some backstory and some context here. And I want to talk a little bit about the character and the blessings. And he starts off talking about the character traits. And you can, if you're in Matthew chapter 5, you can look in verse 3. And I'm kind of just going to give an overview here and walk through these. But he talks about these eight different character traits. And the first one he mentions in verse number 3 is poverty of spirit. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You say, what is, what is poverty of spirit? And really, at, at a fundamental level, poverty of spirit is the acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It's understanding that before God, I am undeserving. That before God, I am unworthy. That I, I can bring nothing to him. That I am undeserving of, of heaven, of grace, of forgiveness of sins. I'm spiritually bankrupt. And that's true in the context of salvation, but it's also true in the Christian life. You know, a lot of times if we're not careful, we think that, you know, I, I can be good. I can be moral. I, I, can, I can live the Christian life in my own power, in my own strength. I'm good. I don't need time with God. I don't need his strength and his help. And folks, that's the opposite of poverty of spirit. That humility comes when we realize how inadequate we really are. You know, when you think about poverty of spirit, I, I think about the story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, uh, where he talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember? The Pharisee and the Pharisees all like, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice and twice in the week. I, I pay all my tithes. And then there was the tax collector who would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but he smote his breast and said, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. You know what that is? It's poverty of spirit. But not just poverty of spirit. Verse number four talks about mournfulness. Blessed are they that mourn. And I believe this is talking about mournfulness over sin. <laughs> you know, the world laughs at sin. It's a joke. It's funny. HBO, TV shows, I mean, it's just, it's all funny. All fun and games. But the citizens of the kingdom, they mourn. They grieve over it. They see the, one in the, the sin in the world and it breaks their heart. They see the sin in their own life. It's not a funny thing. It's not a joke breaks their heart. Mournfulness over sin. Not just poverty of spirit, not just mournfulness over sin. Look at verse number five. Blessed are the meek. Meekness. And meekness is one of those words, it's kind of hard to define a little bit. So you've probably heard a billion definitions of meekness, you know. The one I came up with is, you might think of it like quiet and controlled strength. And I think that, that scripture is often one of the, the best definers of what terms are. And it's interesting because if you go in Galatians 5, you know, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruits is meekness. 
And then actually, in the, in just right after that, in the very next chapter, it talks a little bit more about meekness. And it talks about meekness in the context of restoring a fallen brother or a fallen sister in Christ. And it says that when you do so, you need to do so in the spirit of meekness. It's quiet and controlled strength. It's not reactionary. It's kind of like this. You can imagine that your, your brother or sister, they have a fly on their head. And in one hand, you have a fly swatter, and in the other hand, you have a hammer. Now, both of those will kill the fly, but one of them will kill your brother. Meekness approaches fallen brothers and sisters with a fly swatter and not with a hammer. They're willing to confront. They have the strength to do what is necessary, even when it's not easy. But they do so in love. They do so under control. Meekness. The character of the citizens of the kingdom. He goes on, verse 6, he talks about hunger and thirst for righteousness. A strong seeking out of righteousness. Uh, Verse number 7, mercy. Blessed are the merciful. And folks, mercy is less an attitude and it's more an action. It's kindness given to the miserable. Given to the undeserving. And man, we can be so unmerciful at times. We really can I tell you what, the Lord's really convicted Liz and I even about this this past year. Sometimes if we're not careful, we, we can see the poor or the needy and avoid them. Assume things about them. We'll say things to ourselves like, oh, like they, they, don't, they don't need, they don't deserve my help. But hold on a second. Folks, that, that's what mercy is. It's kindness to the undeserving. That doesn't mean that to be foolish either. That doesn't mean put yourself in situations where you can be in harm's way or you know, go around handing out $100 bills to every you know, homeless person with a sign that you see. But it also doesn't mean doing nothing. One of the things Liz and I have tried to do this last year is we, we actually stocked up our car with uh, water bottles and granola bars. You know? And so whenever we see someone, and, and, and we don't wait for them to come to us, we'll, like, we'll drive up the car or if we're taking a walk or something, we'll just try to give them a water bottle, a granola bar, maybe a track, you know? Someone asks for food, try to, try to help out in whatever way we can. Why? We just want to be merciful. God's just really worked in our heart about that this last year. Blessed are the merciful. He goes on, verse number eight, purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is, this is holiness. It's not, it's not external. It's, it's internal holiness. Internal. And I, I know this. I mean, I, I, I was a student not that long ago. In college, it can be so easy to just play the part. I mean, I, from where I'm, where I'm standing, everybody looks great, right? You guys look awesome, you know? And it's so easy to think that because I look awesome here, I'm good. But the character of the citizens of the kingdom isn't just holiness on the outside or how you appear externally to other people. It's on the inside. It's in your heart. It's purity in the part of you that no one sees but you and God. Purity in heart. Verse number nine. Blessed are the peacemakers. And what makes peacemaking so hard is not the 95% of people that it's like really easy to get along with. It's the 5% of people like that you just cannot stand. Oh my goodness, it can be so hard to be a peacemaker at times. You know, when I was in school, most of you probably know uh, my younger brother, Tim. Uh, Tim works on the college staff here in Dr. Shetler's office, so don't confuse the Brother Bundys. We used to have that problem. We were both here on staff. Students would confuse us. Uh, We look nothing alike, so, you know. Um, But Tim was here, and we were actually, we were in school together for for a a short period of time. 
But what many of you may not know is that actually my youngest brother was a student here as well for, for one semester, uh, Caleb. And uh, Caleb didn't feel called to ministry. Caleb's an engineer serving the Lord faithfully in their, his home church back there in Florida. But there was one semester we were all three here. And we had this bright idea, hey, let's room together, right? You know, because why wouldn't three brothers want to room together at college in these dormitories that are 10 square feet? That'd be great, you know? And I felt bad because there was three of us and there was one other guy, Tom Powell, who was in there. Talk about the odd man out, the fourth wheel on that one, you know? Uh, but it was, uh, I was going to say it was good, but it wasn't. It was a disaster. It was terrible, you know? And I think I was a dorm soup at that time, too, and which made it even, that made the economics of the situation even crazier. But I remember there was this one time that I was in the room, and I, I told Caleb to do something, um, you know, because I was the authority and everything. And, and actually, it was a good, like, he, he should have been doing this thing, you know. And I'm not going to say what it was that he did, because it was disgusting. Uh, but I, I walked into the room, and I saw this, and I was just mad. I think this was, like, just right after lunchtime, and so I think I like, had, like, had an apple or something. And so, like, I had half-eaten this apple, and I see this thing, and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. And, my and I was over in Lawrence Hall, and my brother was sitting out there in the lobby of Lawrence, because I saw him, because I came on the way in over to my room over in the, the corner of Lawrence on the first floor. And so, like, I sped walk from my room out into the, the lobby of Lawrence Hall, and I had this half-eaten apple, and I chucked it at my brother, and it went, and exploded all over the place. <laughs> I was not a peacemaker in that situation. In situations like that, that make it so hard to be a peacemaker at times. That one roommate, that one doormate, that one person. Are you a peacemaker? God is. You know, in our sin and hatred of God, he sent his son to come die in our place so that we might be reconciled to him. If God was willing to go that far to pursue peace with us, we ought to be willing to bend over backwards to pursue peace with others. Peacemakers. And then finally, verse number 10 is persecuted. Persecuted. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he's been talking in the third person here. Verses 11 and 12 kind of expounds on that, uh, talking about persecution. And now he's really applying this specifically to them. Like, blessed are you when you are persecuted, kind of making a personal application. But I'll tell you this, folks, those who live faithfully according to these seven other character traits will experience the eighth. It's like, it's like Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so we see that the character of the citizens of the kingdom. But then he also talks about the blessings. And you probably have heard of this passage of scripture being called the Beatitudes. And that word Beatitudes, why is it called the Beatitudes? The word Beatitude actually means like supreme blessedness, you know? And it's in reference to the blessings that come from living out the character traits of the kingdom. Living righteously as citizens of the kingdom. As we talks about the blessings here as well in these verses. For the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, they will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. The merciful will receive even more mercy from God. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers will be called the children of God. And the persecuted, blessed is theirs, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And it talks about the character. And it talks about the blessings, and it's remarkable. It's, it's awesome. I mean, what an incredible passage of teaching from Jesus. But I think my favorite part of this passage of Scripture is the third part. It's the impact of the citizens of the kingdom. Look at verses 13 through 16. As we see their impact on the world. 
It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt of lost is savior, savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We are in the world, but not of the world, that we might have an impact on the world. That's the gist of Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And he starts off talking about how citizens of the, the kingdom that live in accordance with the character of the kingdom will impact the world in two ways. In two ways. And he talks about the first one in, in verse number 13. Assault. Assault. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. And so what he's doing here, Jesus is using a physical illustration with a spiritual application. A physical illustration with a spiritual application. The physical illustration is salt. And salt is a positive solution to a negative problem. And, and that negative problem is the decay of food, right? Have you ever left, you know, milk out and it kind of goes bad, you know? Or maybe, you know, you bring some, you know, food home from lunch or you have a box or something and then you forget to put it in the fridge and then you leave it out in your room and then the next day you see it and you're like, ah, oh, stink, you know? I'm not going to eat that. Or hopefully you don't eat that at that point in time. But when you leave food out, when you leave uh, milk out and other things like that, the, the food, it decays. It's a, it's a physical problem that needs a solution. You know, as I was doing research for this, I was actually surprised to discover that there's actually one type of food that is, it doesn't decay. Like it never does. I didn't know if you knew this. Like you can leave it out for, for years and years and years and it's always fine. It does not decay. Actually, I have a, I have a picture of that that I wanted to show you guys uh, this morning. The picture of that, that food that does not decay. If we can get that up there on the screen. There we go. <laughs> McDonald's. Uh, believe it or not, uh, this is actually a 10-year-old hamburger and fry right here. This Icelandic man, he took this, this hamburger and fry and put it in this, this glass case there. And I just, I just want you to remember that the next time you're ba-da-ba-ba-ba loving it, you know. Um, the decay of all other food. That's the problem, right? You know, there's this time, I remember when Liz and I had just gotten married, and we, we were just getting started fresh in the ministry, and man, we were so green. You know, it's funny, because like the, the older I get, and the more, the longer I serve in ministry, the, the more I feel like I don't know anything, right? And it's funny, because when you first get out, like you feel like you know everything. But I remember when we, when we had first started, and uh, you know, we, you know, we're just kind of trying to figure out married life, and it's just, it's an adjustment, it really is. Just like having a kid is an adjustment, like a major adjustment in your relationship, even with your spouse. But I remember we, we had just gotten married, you know, we were doing, you know, home-cooked meals and different things and eating food. And we're, we're kind of on a little bit of a health kick now, but back then we were totally not. And one of our favorite food groups that we had as a couple was, it was macaroni and cheese, macaroni and cheese. And you've got different levels of macaroni and cheese. You've got like the craft, like the little noodles, and then you've got like the Velveeta shells and cheese. Oh my goodness, folks. That, that, the manna from heaven was Velveeta shells and cheese. I didn't know if you knew that. But that's the good stuff, you know? And then we, and we, we took it even to another level. And Liz and I, we were working on like some homemade macaroni and cheese. And then we were so excited. And we've been, you know, you cook something and you put effort into it and you got all the ingredients and everything. And we have this Velveeta, uh, no, no, not the, we had this homemade macaroni and cheese and we cooked it and it comes, you know, piping hot out of the, out of the stove there, out of the oven. And we take it and we put it down on that, that dining room table and we, we scoop it out and put it on the plate, say our blessing. And I, I put my fork in that, put it in my mouth, excited just to taste heaven on, on a fork. And folks, it was the most disgusting thing I have ever tasted. I mean, like, literally, I spit it out. Unbeknownst to Liz and I, 
the milk that we had used in the milk, the mac and cheese was spoiled. <sighs> yeah, that, that's what I, that's what we, literally that sound you just made is exactly what we did. <laughs> Decay. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a physical problem. But there's a physical solution to the problem of the decay of food. Salt. Salt. It acts as a preservative. It holds back decay. Now, I think this, is, this might be a little bit hard for us to understand because most of us, I mean, I'm sure most of us have salted our food at some point in our lives, but we, most of us probably have not, like, salted our food for the purpose of preserving it, you know, or gone through that process. Um, it, it's not very common. I was trying to think, well, like, how could we put this in terms for us today uh, that might be a little bit more applicable or that we might understand a little bit better? And I was like, well, how do we preserve our food? And in a hippie, it's like, oh, the refrigerator, right? Or the freezer. Like, that's what you do, right? If you want something and you're, you're not going to eat it today, but you're going to eat it tomorrow, you put it in the refrigerator. Or if you're looking for something a little bit more long-term, what do you do? You throw it in the freezer. Folks, you are the refrigerators of the earth. That is what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5. The salt of the earth, it holds back decay. It's a preservative, just as refrigerators in our context are as well. And so he uses this physical application of this preservative, but then he has a, this physical illustration, but then he has a spiritual application. He says that there, there's a negative problem, and that negative problem is the decay of the world. Just like food, the longer it's left to itself outside of preservatives, you know what happens? It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. It's a spiritual problem. But just like there's a, a physical solution to that problem of physical de decay, there is a spiritual solution to the problem of spiritual decay. And you know what it is? It's you. It's you. It's, it's the citizens of the kingdom living out the character of the kingdom. It's you and me. Look what he says in verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? If salt is sufficiently corrupted by, like, say, like sand or something like that, then it can no longer be used as a preservative. The purpose of salt is to fight deterioration. Therefore, it, so it, must, it must itself not deteriorate. It's kind of like this, like if the salt stops preserving, you can't salt the salt, right? Or if the refrigerator stops refrigerating, you can't refrigerate the refrigerator. That's what he's saying here. He goes on. It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. Well, if the salt loses its saltiness, then what? It may as well just be taken and thrown out into the, really the dump of the ancient Near East. You know that way? That was the streets. And trodden under the foot of men. If your salt no longer preserves, what do you do? You throw it away. You might think of it like this, too. If your refrigerator stops working and it's not fixable, what do you do? Do you keep it as a relic in your garage? No. You throw it away. Here's the application. Are you living in a way that you are holding back the spiritual and moral decay where God has you? Are you living out the character traits of the kingdom? Or are you like a broken refrigerator that no longer serves its purpose and deserves to be thrown away? God has called us to be like salt, to hold back the moral decay of a dying world. But he hasn't just called us to be like salt. He uses another illustration here. In verse number 14, it's light. He has called us to impact the world as light. Look at verses 14 through 16. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, 
and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And once again, what Jesus is doing here is using a physical illustration with a spiritual application. And he's talking about light. Light is a positive solution to a negative problem. You say, what is the problem? Well, the problem is darkness. And not even just darkness. What might help us to understand this a little bit better is to think about the effects of darkness. Losing your bearings. Being unable to move. Being lost in darkness. Directionless. Folks, I don't know if you understand this, because we have so much light in the world today. Pitch black darkness is utterly incapacitating. Utterly incapacitating. The problem for most of us, though, is we haven't really been in, in pitch black darkness before. So I was thinking of this and maybe some occurrences where we may have been in a situation like that. I was thinking about like this, like how, how many, okay, I, I would imagine most of us like have been in a cave before. Like how many of you have been in a cave before? How many of you have like not just been in a cave, but you actually like did like the whole cave diving thing, spelunking or whatever they call How many of you have actually done that before? You guys are insane. I would never do that. And, and I would never do that because of the illustration I'm about to get you, give you. I want you to imagine that you are, and, and you're just kind of feeling adventurous on one day. And so you are going to journey down into a cave by yourself alone, right? You've got your light, you've got your flashlight and other stuff, but, but you're going down into this cave by yourself. And I want you to imagine that you are exploring down into this cave and you're going down and you're, you know, you're, you're kind of crawling through certain areas and you're having to jump across certain areas, you know, and you're making your way down through this cave. And I, I want you to imagine you get down, you've been in there about an hour or so, and you're down in this cave. And I want you to imagine that you did not use the Energizer Bunny batteries and your light goes out. And imagine you've got your cell phone there, though, but then your cell phone is dead. I want you to imagine that for a second, how that would feel. Pitch black darkness. The kind of darkness where you could smack yourself on the face and you wouldn't even see your hand. Being lost. It's terrifying. That is why I will never go spelunking, because I have nightmares about that exact scenario. But folks, it's an illustration of how incapacitating Physical darkness and being, how being lost in it, how it can affect us. But there's a positive solution to the darkness, and you know what it is? It's light. Light. Folks, light provides direction. Light helps lost people find their way. You know, I, I think for many of us, it's hard to identify with the problem of darkness because we don't live in the ancient world where there wasn't that much light. But I think all of us can identify with the idea of being lost. Like, have you ever, like, really, really been lost before? It's terrifying. Like, you're up in the mountains in the middle of the night, and your GPS goes out, and all of a sudden your directions are gone, and you have no signal. It's terrifying. Yeah, I remember when I, when I first came out to school here, and I went to uh, my freshman semester. My first semester, I went out, you know, they had the job fair, and I got a job doing some door-to-door -door solar stuff. And we had a training uh, down in the heart of L.A., and uh, so I'm a freshman, I mean like fresh, fresh freshman. And, uh, and so myself and there's this other guy, Isaiah Nuno, and he got hired on too, and he, he was, I think he was a fresh, fresh freshman too. And uh, the two of us, we were gonna go drive down into the heart of LA for this training. And I think it was like the middle of the day when we went down there and traffic's not that bad at that point in time. So we go down, we're, we're there for this training, uh, and then they let us out of this training, and it was, I think it was about five o'clock, four or five o'clock or something. Smack dab in the middle of LA traffic in downtown LA. And, and keep in mind, like, I just got to California. 
Like, I've driven in Orlando traffic, but folks, Orlando traffic is nothing compared to LA traffic during rush hour in the heart of downtown LA. And so I'm kind of panicking, because even like when you drive in LA traffic, there's a couple of things, like you, like in, in like bumper to bumper traffic, like if, you're, if you need to get over a lane, well like they're not gonna like leave a spot open there, right? Like there's no, I'm gonna wait until a hole opens, and there's no hole, there's no hole at all. If you're gonna get over a lane, you know what you have to do? You literally have to like stick the nose of your car in front of the car adjacent to you, to where like if they do not stop, they are literally going to hit the passenger side of your vehicle. It's crazy. And of course, no one told me any of this, and I'm figuring this out for the first time in the middle of downtown LA in rush hour traffic. Now, we were down there, and we were heading back, and I had a, one of those Garmin GPS things back when people still used those. And, and I had my, my cell phone, too. And so I thought, okay, I've got, I've got the directions here, I've got my phone, too, everything's fine, you know. And so we're in the middle of it, like downtown, like there's buildings on you know, either side of skyscrapers and stuff, going under bridges and stuff, and you know, seven or 700 lanes of traffic, whatever it was, I can't remember exactly, you know. We're driving, and my GPS freezes. Freeze. And there's like that moment where just your heart drops. Just drops. But I was like, okay, I've got my phone. And I looked at my phone, and my, I think my phone was like dead. And my charger wasn't working. And here are two freshmen down in the middle of LA traffic in rush hour. Just got to California. No idea where we're going. And folks, I'm telling you, those five minutes the best minutes of my prayer life that I have ever had, man. I was just praying, God, please, please heal my GPS, heal my Garmin, restore my phone charger, you know? And he did. I don't, I don't remember if it was the Garmin or the, you know, eventually, like, we were able to figure it out, and I think we eventually got back a couple days later, and it was great. <laughs> but, man, it was terrifying being lost. But, folks, when you are lost, there is nothing, there's nothing more desirous than direction. And when you are in darkness, there is nothing more beautiful and desirous and needed than light, than light. And Jesus takes this physical illustration and he makes a spiritual application. There's a negative problem in the world today, and the negative problem is the darkness of the world. The world is lost in darkness. The world is directionless. They have completely lost their bearings, but there is a spiritual solution to the problem of the spiritual darkness that the world is in, folks. And the solution to that problem is you. It is you. The citizens of the kingdom living in accordance with the character of the kingdom. And when you do that, and when we live like we should, you know what we do, folks? We shine like lights in the darkness and we point lost people to God, they can see. They are lost, but they can become found. They were stranded in darkness, and yet now there's a glimmer of light. Verse number 14. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And folks, once again, in the ancient world when there's light is like rare, you know, it's, it's not that common. You know, and everything is mostly dark, especially at nighttime. If there's a city off in the distance, and I'm talking about miles and miles and miles away, by modern standards, we might not think that it's much light, but when everything around it is dark, you can see that thing from forever away. It can't be hid because there's so much darkness. He goes on, he says, verse number 15, neither do men light a candle. He's talking about like a little, little olive oil lamp. And put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. We might not think of an olive oil lamp, like a small lamp like that, as much light. But folks, when there is no Alexa, when there are no smart lights, when there is no light switch, there is no, who did the, uh, who did, who did the lights? Oh, goodness, who invented the lights? 
Edison, Edison. I was going to say Alexander Graham Bell, but that is not right. <laughs> there is no him, right? There's no lights. And when there is no lights, even just something as small as a little lamp, you take around the house, folks, it's sufficient. Why? Because in the midst of all of that darkness, all you need is a little light to light up the house. And look what he says in verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And here's the application this morning. Are you living in such a way that you are shining as lights in the midst of darkness? Are you living out the character of the kingdom? Do lost people look at your life and see something so different that they want to know what you have found? Or is the way that you live your life not even distinguishable from the way that your lost friends live theirs? You say, well, Jacob, of course. Like, of course I'm shining like a light in the darkness. Don't you understand? Jake? I mean, Jacob, you were a college student. You should know this. I wear khakis and a polo to Walmart, you know? I wear a skirt to Walmart. I stick out like a light in the darkness. I, I wear a tie. I go to church. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. But hold on a second. Jesus didn't mention any of those things in Matthew chapter 5. And there's nothing wrong with those things, and you, you should follow the rules that the authorities put in place. But that's not the kind of stuff that makes you shine as a light in the darkness, according to Matthew chapter 5. You know who thought that kind of stuff made them sufficiently righteous? The Pharisees. Oh, they were all about that external kind of stuff. You say, well, what is Jesus talking about then? What kind of life really makes an impact? Holds back a dying world? Shines in the darkness? Here it is. And I want you to take a moment and just take a good, long look inside. It is a life marked by poverty of spirit. A humble brokenness before God. An understanding that I cannot live the Christian life in my own strength but that I need to live every single day dependent upon God because I am spiritually bankrupt in my flesh. It is the life marked by mournfulness over sin. A life that doesn't laugh at the crudeness of the world, that doesn't laugh at the crude jokes that get told in the dorms. A life that is broken over the brokenness of the world. A life that when it finds itself having sinned, is broken over that. It doesn't shrug it off, but laments to God in repentance. It is the life that is marked by quiet and controlled strength. Not the life that is reactionary and caustic and is kind of all over the place and out of control, but the life of one who has the strength to do what is necessary, but does it with a heart of love and kindness and compassion and empathy. It is the life that is marked by hunger and thirst for righteousness. Just as every single day we think about, what am I eating for lunch? What am I eating for dinner? What is next? What am I, I going to drink? It is the life that is marked by that kind of mentality and that kind of constant constancy, thinking about how can I be more like Jesus Christ today? I want it so bad. It is the life marked by mercy. That when people hurt you or the people are undeserving and unfair, you don't respond in kind. You respond in kindness, in love, in care, in action, in deed, 
to the undeserving. It is the life marked by purity of heart. The area of you that no one sees but you and God. Your heart, your thoughts, your mind, your truest self. Not the self that you portray to the crowds or to your friends or even your closest companions. It is the life marked by peacemaking. By one who is not known for, I, I gotta kinda walk on eggshells around this person. I'm not really sure if today is a good day or a bad day or I've gotta make sure I say the right things, but the kind of person that you know that if there is something there, they'll work it out with you. They're peacemakers. They seek to build relationships, not burn bridges. They bend over backwards in the same way that their savior bent over backwards for them because they want to be like him in every way. And then finally, it is the life marked by persecution because of righteousness. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And for the believer that does not suffer persecution in some way, shape, or form, that believer should take some time and really do some introspective thinking. How godly and how righteous am I really living?